Good morning. Good morning. Oh, hello, uh, Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. I look out, see a lot of uh, familiar faces and some newer faces and some visiting faces as well. Uh, praying that just God ministers to us as we gather here. Uh, we're going to turn our attention to the Word of the Lord in our continued study through the Gospel account of Luke. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Uh, so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to encourage you to open it up to Luke 22. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down, borrow one of the Bibles that are located underneath a number of the chairs around you. Um, it is, we do believe that it's important that you're able to f- just follow along as we go through the text. Now, our text this morning is going to be a, a short one, um, but that doesn't mean we're going to be short in time, uh, so don't get it too excited. Um, <laughs> We're only going to be looking at uh, nine verses from chapter 22 as we look to cover a major event in the Bible that's actually recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us details about this event that we're going to be covering. And so we will be kind of looking at Mark and Matthew and John to help fill in uh, all the details. They will have a full picture of an understanding of what's going on in our text this morning. Uh, Speaking of which, our text is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62, and the title of our study, for those of you who like to take notes or write these things down, is Peter's Downward Spiral, okay, Peter's Downward Spiral. Uh, Today's text and and message is not necessarily, I'm going to give you a forewarning, it's not necessarily a feel-good, pick-me-up type of message, we're going to look at a really sad event. Uh, But I trust that God has led us to this place at this time, and that he wants to speak to us through this text this morning. So, will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's okay. Just do your best to follow along as I read through uh, our text. So, Dr. Luke, uh, remember Luke was a physician as well as a historian, Uh, He records for us the following in verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Verse 59, Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord churned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to open up your word and allow your word just to speak to us. And Lord, we're going to be looking at as you've led us, as we've gone systematically through uh, this chapter, uh, this book, Lord, we'll come across a, a sad account, uh, a heavy portion. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts and uh, that we might be able to receive from you what your spirit is wanting to say to us. Lord, we thank you that your word comes with a guarantee, a promise that it will not return void as it goes forth. And so, Lord, as we get into your word, as we proclaim your word, as we study your word, we pray that it would uh, do a wonderful work in us and through us. Lord, may we understand what's going on in the context of the setting of what happened that night, but also may we understand how this applies to us and what we might be able to learn from this as well. And so, Lord, lead and guide us in our time of study. We give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So we pick up Luke's account this morning where we left off last week. Uh, It is the night of our Savior's betrayal. I want to give a little bit of just 
you know, catch everybody up in case you haven't been following the last uh, couple weeks. Jesus and his disciples, they've exited the upper room and crossed the Kidron Valley, making their way to the base of the mountain of, uh, Mount of Olives, where there was a garden. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. And while in the garden, Jesus exhorted his disciples to pray. He specifically asked Peter, James, and John to pray for him as he went and spent some time alone with his father in prayer. Jesus prayed to the Father asking if there were any other way, if there was any way that this cup could be taken from him, the, the cup, of, cup of suffering that he knew lied before him. Jesus asked if it were possible for it to pass. But he also concluded his prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. <clears throat> After Jesus had finished praying, he came back to find his disciples sleeping and not just one time, but three separate times he went off to pray and exhorted his disciples to pray with him and for him, only for him to return and find them sleeping each time. After his time of prayer, Jesus called his disciples to rise to their feet, for the time of his betrayal had come. And while he was still speaking to his disciples, a great multitude approached, led by none other than Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve that had walked with Jesus for the last three plus years of his earthly ministry. Judas had agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he told the religious leaders to seize the one whom he kissed. And it was as he approached Jesus that Jesus asked Judas, saying, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When the disciples realized what was going on, they called out to Jesus, asking if they should strike with the sword. And, and instead of waiting upon the Lord for an answer, we read about how Peter pulled out his sword and chopped off the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest. But Jesus was there to, to heal the servant, and he prevented things from escalating in that moment. He willingly surrendered himself to the authorities, understanding that this was their time. It was the power of darkness at work in them. Jesus knew that this was all part of God's plan for him. Jesus needed to be betrayed. He needed to be tried, sentenced, and ultimately crucified in order to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Our account this morning, it picks up with an explanation of what transpired after Jesus' arrest. In our text this morning, we're going to focus in upon Peter's denial of Christ that he forewarned Peter um, would happen about excuse me, he forewarned Peter that it would happen earlier that night. Now this, as I mentioned, is an incredibly sad and, and heartbreaking account to read of. Peter was one who was so bold in his faith, one who believed he'd be able to endure anything. And yet in our account this morning, we're going to see this man simply crumble right before our eyes. And as we go through the account, we're going to note a couple of characteristic traits about Peter, uh, about our words and our deeds and then at the end, we're going to take some time to review a few of the details that transpired leading up to Peter's fall, okay? And it's my belief that this was a downward spiral Peter was upon, okay? And if we're not careful, we too can find ourselves upon the same downward spiral, doing and saying things we never thought even possible. And so today's going to be a warning for us, okay? Um, again, just fair warning for you. <laughs> Let's dive into the study of our text this morning, beginning in verse 54. It says, Having arrested him, referring to Jesus, having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. And so our text opens up telling us about how Jesus had been arrested and brought to the house of the high priest. This was in the middle of the night, and they couldn't take Jesus to Pontius Pilate just yet. They needed to make it seem like everything was on the up and up. And so they rendezvoused at the high priest's house in order to get things all squared away. And interestingly enough, Luke decides to focus his attention on what happened with Peter during this time. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll read of what Luke says was happening to Jesus while all of these things associated with Peter were taking place. But the short of it is that Jesus was being questioned. He was being mocked. He was being spit upon, and he was being beaten during this same time. Both Jesus and Peter were facing somewhat similar situations. They both are going to be put to trial. Both are going to be questioned by others, and both are going to have accusations brought against them. But the way in which each of them handled these trials is distinctly 
different. One would stand boldly and courageously in the face of opposition, while the other will cower in fear of the opposition. One would be led to the cross where his blood would be shed for us, while the other would flee from God's presence while shedding bitter tears of sorrow. The end of verse 54 begins our account of Peter's actions that night. We're told that Peter followed at a distance. Now, following Jesus is good, right? We should follow Jesus. As Christians, that's kind of what we identify ourselves with, as followers of Jesus, right? Following Jesus is good, but following at a distance, that's concerning, okay? The sense of the word is that Peter was following Jesus from afar. You know, he didn't want to get too close He loved Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He had given his life to following Jesus. But when things weren't going so well, we see that Peter decided to keep his distance. Instead of drawing near to the Lord in this trial, Peter decided to keep his distance, to follow Jesus from afar. And we know this isn't the best decision on Peter's behalf because God invites us to come to him, to draw near to him. James actually shares a wonderful promise from the Lord, exhorting us, draw near to God. And the promise is, He will draw near to us. Right? As we draw near to God, God will draw near to us and meet us. Isaiah the prophet writes, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And the psalmist assures us that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. You say, instead of drawing near to Jesus, instead of seeking him out, instead of calling out to to him, Peter fades into the background, following the Lord from a distance, and this will be part of his downward spiral for sure. Let's continue in our text. We'll see what else happens as Peter is following Jesus from a distance. Read verses 55 and 56 with me. It says, now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat amongst them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. Here we have recorded for us the first of three accusations that are going to be brought against Peter. As Peter followed Jesus from a distance, he was led to the courtyard of the high priest and he sat amongst the others who had gathered together that night. Now, the other gospel writers tell us who these other people were. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter sat amongst the servants of all these high-ranking officials that had gathered together at the house of the high priest. He sat amongst them, warming himself by the fire, Mark writes. John's gospel tells us that it was a, a cold night, and evidently Peter didn't want to have to be discomforted by the cold air. And so he brought a place, sought a place around the fire with the servants of the high priest. Now, I want you to consider for just a second the stark contrast between what Jesus is experiencing and what Peter is dealing with. Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders, these same religious leaders that have been seeking and plotting opportunity to kill him. He's being falsely accused of blasphemy, and he's being spit upon, he's being slapped, He's being blindfolded and he's being punched. He's being made a mockery as they say to him, prophesy, waiting and wanting for him to tell who it was who struck him. And Peter, while his master is enduring all this, is hanging out with the servants of the very men that are responsible for overseeing Jesus' treatment. Hanging out with them and warming himself by the comfort of the fire because, you know, it was a little bit cold that night, you know, so he wants to be comfortable. Quite a contrast when we consider these two trials that these two men face. This is the same man that just a few hours ago, if even that, wielded a sword and was set to take on the entire detachment of troops that dared to even lay hands on his Lord. Oh, how things have changed. What happened? You know, what happened? This man at one time was ready to take on seemingly the whole world for his Lord, but now he's content to hang out with the associates of the enemy and find comfort in what they have to offer. Have you ever known someone like that before in your life? Someone that was, you know, just all set to take on this world for the Lord, but eventually found themselves finding comfort in the things that this world offers? And the fight's just been taken out of them and and they're just content to just kind of lay low and 
avoid any sort of challenge to their faith? And maybe a, a better question to ask is, are you that someone? You know, perhaps when you got saved, you were, you know, all excited about the Lord and, and you were soaking up God's word and you were telling everybody you, you knew about Jesus. You were out there evangelizing, sharing your faith with anyone. And, and then something happened. I, and I don't know what, okay, but something happened. And now, you know, you're just content to, to find comfort by the fire of the high priest's servants. You've kind of lost that fire for the Lord. And now you're content to just replace it with what the world has to offer. Listen, if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, exhort you if I can, if I may. You need to get back to that place you once were. You need to repent and you need to return to the Lord. You need to seek his forgiveness. You need to ask him to rekindle that fire in your heart. Don't be content with the world and the things of this world. Don't let your fire for the Lord be replaced with something from this world. Okay? Seeking warmth and, and comfort from the world will lead you to do and say things that you will regret, just like it does for Peter. Now, as Peter was warming himself by the fire, one of the servant girls of the high priest came along, and she looked at Peter and said, This man was also with him. Luke explains how this girl was watching Peter as he sat by the fire. It says that she was looking intently at him. The Greek word translated as intently, it's used to describe having your eyes fixed upon something or to steadfastly look at, earnestly look upon. This woman was watching Peter closely as he sat there by the fire. You know, the same is true for us as Christians. There are people out there that have their eyes fixed upon you. People that are watching you to see what you do. What kind of example are you letting the world look upon? If people were to look upon you steadfastly and to watch you closely, you know, throughout your day, what would they see? Would what they see lead them to the same conclusion that this woman came to? None of the Gospels give us any sort of indication as to why she had her gaze set upon him. All we know is that she must have saw something that made her connect him to Jesus. For her accusation against Peter is this man was also with him. You know, if people were to look at your life, would they come to the same conclusion? Would they associate the things they saw with someone that has been with Jesus? It's interesting, the wording in the Greek, when the servant girl says this man was also with him, the the word with, it did not just mean that Peter happened to be in the same place with Jesus at one time, but rather that Peter accompanied him. Uh, it speaks of companionship and fellowship. She was saying that Peter was a, a companion of Jesus, that they fellowshiped together. Do our lives say the same? Do our lives say that we are a, a companion of Jesus Christ or that we are in fellowship with him? Because they ought to. Peter should look, or excuse me, people should look at us and see our actions and come to the same conclusion that this servant girl did, that we've been with Jesus, that we are in fellowship with Jesus, that we are a companion of his. Well, let's see how Peter responds to this first accusation brought against him. Read verse 57 with me. It says, but he denied him saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter's first response to the accusations brought against him was to deny the accusations. It was the first of what would become his three denials. In front of all the other servants and those who had gathered around the fire, Peter denied the accusation from the servant girl that, had been, that he had been with Jesus. Peter, who previously said he would die with the Lord before ever denying him, he crumbles at the slightest accusation from a seemingly powerless servant girl. Not only does he deny the statement about being with Jesus, uh, being a companion of him, but he tells the girl, woman, I do not know him. The word know, it carries this sense of experiential knowledge, not just head knowledge. Okay? Peter wasn't saying, Jesus, never heard of him. You know, it wasn't that kind of like, I don't even know anything all about him. But he was saying, I don't know him experientially, right? It was as if he was saying, Jesus, you know, I've never met the man. 
I have no prior experience with him. I have no relationship with him whatsoever. Peter had spent the last three years walking with Jesus and learning at his feet. He had seen Jesus perform countless miracles and was even empowered by Jesus to perform miracles himself. He had special, intimate time with Jesus, more so than probably any of the other disciples. You know, just recall a few of the uh, early encounters that Peter had with the Lord. There out on the Sea of Galilee in Peter's boat, I'm reminded, Jesus told Peter to launch his nets into the deep, but Peter had spent all night fishing. He had caught nothing. Yet to appease the one he called master, he said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. We almost get the sense like it's kind of like one of these like, okay, you know, we've already done this, but I'll do it because you said to, you'll see that there's no fish, you know, in the area. But if you know the account, you know what happened, right? If you remember, you'll recall that Peter caught so many fish in his net that the boat began to sink from the weight of all the fish. And it's at that time when Peter turned to Jesus and he declared with great fear and trembling, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We get the sense that he was just overwhelmed with the sense of who this person was standing before him in his boat like, oh my goodness, this is the Lord. Another time when many of Jesus' disciples were turning from him because of some of the things he was teaching that were difficult to understand, Jesus asked his disciples if they too were going to leave. And it was Peter that said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You see, Peter had been blown away by Christ on multiple occasions. He declared him to be his master, his Lord, his Christ, and the very son of the living God. But here he says, I have no relation with him. I have had no interaction with him at all. So sad. The fear of man had grabbed a hold of Peter and it was taking him down. The Proverbs state that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Peter needed to stop fearing man and start trusting in the Lord as he had done so previously. He was falling, heading down. Let's continue along in our text. We'll come to the second accusation brought against Peter. It's found in the beginning of verse 58. It says, And after a little while another saw him and said, You also are of them. Pause right there. So after denying knowing Jesus at all, we're told that after a little while, another person came and approached Peter with a second accusation. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter actually got up and departed from being around the fire with the servants and made his way out towards the gateway. But there was really no getting away from the watchful eyes of the servants there in that area. And and word started to spread. It seemed as though people were whispering, back and forth, everywhere that Peter went, probably pointing at him and talking amongst themselves. You know, when you read all four gospel writers, you gather them together, you get the sense that there was actually a number of different people that that questioned Peter about his connection with Jesus. Luke records how Peter was approached by another servant and accused of being of them. He says, you also are of them. Now, what does that exactly mean, uh, that he was of them? It's referring to being a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, that Peter was part of the group of people that went in and out and round with Jesus. But how does Peter respond? Look at the rest of verse 58. He says, but Peter said, man, I am not. Peter, for the second time in the night, denied it. He denied it emphatically, proclaiming, man, I am not. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that Peter, during his second denial, that he denied it with an oath. In Matthew 26, verse 72, an oath was a binding statement that uh, was often made in God's name. We can't say for sure what sort of oath Peter made, for it's not given to us here, but we do know that it is something that he shouldn't have done. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, during his Sermon on the Mount, uh, gave very specific instructions about the use of oaths. 
In Matthew 5, through 37, it reads, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Peter knew better than to use oaths. Okay, it was wrong. No matter what he swore by, Jesus said it was from the evil one. And the wording that he used in his oath was also of great concern. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 72, it does say uh, in his oath, I do not know the man. When he said, I do not know the man, the Greek word used for man is used in the New Testament to make the distinction between sinful man whose nature is opposed to God And then there's another Greek word that's used simply to refer to a male or a husband. So two different Greek words. So he's saying, I do not know the man, that sinful man that is totally opposed to God, separate from God. There's man and there's God. He's man. I do not know that man, is what he said. The shocking part of this statement is that it was Peter who earlier inspired by the Father so boldly and triumphantly declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But here in front of this nameless servant, Peter says with an oath, I do not know the man. He declares that he's not part of them, not part of them. He's not part of the Lord. Let's continue to see what takes place next. Read verse 59 with me. It says, then after about an hour had passed, Another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. We're told that about an hour passed by. Peter seemingly is trying to hide away as best as possible to avoid the constant accusations, the murmuring, the pointing of fingers, the questions about his identity and his connection with Jesus. But we read that yet another person came forth with an accusation directed towards Peter. And this person did so with great confidence. He was sure of it, and Peter was running out of ways to dodge their questioning and accusations. The person comes forth and states, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Now, Jesus had spent nearly three years ministering primarily in the area of Galilee, and so his name was connected and associated with the region. If you were from Galilee, the assumption was, oh, you must be very familiar with Jesus. This person that came forth claimed that Peter must be with Jesus because he was Galilean. But Luke doesn't tell us how the people were able to tell that Peter was from Galilee. But the other gospel writers do. Okay, Mark tells us, in fact, Mark's gospel account reads of this third accusation stating, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Evidently, Galileans had a certain type of accent that was distinguishable from people from other regions. And because of the way Peter spoke, they could tell that he was from Galilee and that he must have been a companion of Jesus. You know, sometimes our speech gives us away. Some of you guys really can't hide where you come from, okay? Um, you know, I think uh, many of our Filipinos and Filipinas, uh, it's like, yeah, you, you, you're from the Philippines. Uh, it's, it's very easy to hear. I think some of you guys from the South um, are easily identified with the, you know, your, your y'alls and uh, bless your hearts, which I know doesn't necessarily mean bless your heart all the time. Um, I'm from California. You know, I say dude a lot uh, when I'm talking. I hope that you don't be offended by it or that you hold it against me that I'm from California. Um, I, but I do have this to say. I haven't lived there for almost 20 years, so that is okay, I guess. Does your speech give you away? And I'm not talking about where you're from, okay? The words that we use, the, the, the things that we say, they say a lot about us. Do the words you use give you away? Peter's words suggested that he had been with Jesus. What about our words? Do they do the same? Do they suggest we've been with Jesus? Because they should The Bible has quite a few things to say about our speech as Christians. Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in their hearts to the Lord. Later on in that same letter, he said that our speech should always be with grace and seasoned with salt. In his letter to the Ephesians, he commanded, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. You see, as Christians, our speech ought to be encouraging and edifying and full of grace. People ought to hear the words that we speak and think, oh, this person knows Jesus. This person's been with the Lord. Unfortunately, that isn't always the case. Sometimes our speech is more characterized by what James had to say about our tongue and the words that we use. With our tongue, he said, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. He continues and he says, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. You see, the words that we use are very important. In fact, according to Jesus, the words we use are simply evidence of actually what's in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He also said that we would give an account in the day of judgment for all the idle words we speak. Our speech is very important, and it ought to say, this guy knows Jesus. Or it ought to say, this lady's been with the Lord. May our speech, just like our actions, identify us with Christ. Let's take a look at our, the first part of verse 60. We'll see how Peter responds to this third accusation. Follow along. Luke writes at the beginning, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. We'll stop there. Again, for the third time, Peter denies knowing anything at all about what these people are saying and accusing him of. Again, Luke doesn't give us the full details, but Matthew and Mark both say that Peter answered this third accusation by cursing and swearing that he did not know the man of whom they were speaking. Peter started using some speech that was sure to separate him from any association with Jesus Christ. You know, we do the same thing when we allow certain language to come from our lips. We suggest to others that we don't have anything to do with Jesus by the words that we allow to come out of our mouths sometimes. Peter started cursing and swearing to show his disdain for the accusations and to give them an earful of language that he hoped would make them believe that, well, what he was saying was true. Now, when it says he began cursing and swearing, it isn't the same as what we may think of today, okay? I don't believe that he was using any, you know, four-letter words or anything like that. What is meant here really is that he was calling God to curse him if he wasn't telling the truth. Basically like saying, you know, I swear to you know who, right? Like, but actually saying, you know, God, calling upon God's name. He was calling God as witness and basically saying something to the effect of, may God strike me down if what I'm saying is not true. That's what's meant by this idea of cursing and swearing. Have you noticed the progression which each, with each of the accusations and with each of Peter's denials? He started off simply denying knowing Jesus. I don't, I don't know the man. But then he starts to use oaths to try and persuade the thoughts of others around him. And in his third denial, he starts cursing and swearing to God. Each denial got worse and worse, and with each denial, he tried his best to distance himself further and further from the Lord. What a slippery slope Peter has found himself upon. A downward spiral that is about to hit rock bottom. No sooner did his cursing end that something dreadful happened that I'm sure had to hit Peter like an arrow straight through his heart. Take a look at the rest of verse 60 through to the end of our text. Verse 62, it says, Immediately... While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord churned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. As soon as Peter denied the Lord the third time, the rooster crowed, just as the Lord had prophesied earlier that night. And when that rooster crowed, we are told that the Lord churned and looked at Peter and caught eyes with him. In the midst of the crowd of people and the poor lighting of the night, somehow, way, the eyes of the Lord were able to part through everything around and meet with the eyes of Peter. 
And it was in that moment when the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at him that Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how Jesus had declared that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. You know, I wonder what that look from the Lord looked like. I don't think it was a, see, I told you so kind of a look. I don't, I don't believe it was that kind of a look. I think it was a, a look of sorrow and regret, a look that penetrated into the very heart of Peter. And I also wonder what the look on Peter's face was like when the reality of his sin, his complete denial of the Lord fell upon him like a ton of bricks. His heart was crushed. For after that look from the Lord and remembering what the Lord said, we're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly. This wasn't just a, you know, we catch eyes and, and you know, a single little tear trickles down his cheek, okay? This, this was, you know, every external expression of grief, weep, of grief, excuse me, weeping, wailing, okay? Great lament, sobbing. Peter's just instantly starts sobbing when he catches eyes with the Lord. He was stricken with sorrow. He was no longer able to endure being in the Lord's presence. He ended up departing from the courtyard, abandoning Jesus. What happened to Peter? Right? Peter had fallen. He had failed. He found himself on this downward spiral that just kept going further and further and further down until he hits this place. He was so confident earlier on that he would never stumble, that he would die before ever denying the Lord. He was willing to go to prison for Jesus, to lay down his life for Jesus, yet here he is bitterly weeping, having denied the Lord three times. And what is it that led to Peter's denial? How did he get to this place? I'd like to look back through the events of this particular night. A little bit of a review, but also kind of what we covered tonight to help highlight some of the things that led Peter to the place that he ended up. And my hope in doing so is not to, you know, point out these great failures of Peter and how he blew it, but so that we might look at them and we might learn from them ourselves. That we might learn from Peter's mistakes and ensure that we don't find ourselves in the same place Peter's found himself at now. We're going to note Eight different actions and attitudes that led to this downward spiral of Peter's. Okay, so if you're a note taker, you get ready, write them down. We'll go through them somewhat quickly. First off, earlier in the night, you guys may recall, when they were gathered together in the upper room, Jesus came to the disciples and told them that all of them would be made to stumble because of Jesus on this night. But Peter didn't believe the word of the Lord. Okay. In Matthew's gospel, Peter is quoted as saying, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said, this is the truth. You're all going to be made to stumble. Peter said, no, it's not. I'm not. Maybe all of them, but not me. Peter basically told Jesus that his word was inaccurate. You're wrong, Jesus. Jesus had told Peter, along with all the other disciples, that they would all be made to stumble because of him, but Peter didn't believe him. He didn't believe God's word. And listen, when we start to doubt the accuracy of the word of God, when we start to discredit the word, and when we start to diminish it, when we start to think it's not that important, we will be on the path that ultimately leads to the place of failure and to sliding down that downward spiral. When we start to minimize the Word of God and we begin to think that it doesn't apply to us, we are headed for trouble. Number two. Second, we see that Peter had too much pride and confidence in the flesh. Look up at verse 33 of Luke chapter 22. After being told about how Satan desired to sift him as we, Peter boasted about how he was ready to go with Jesus, even if that meant going to prison or even to his own death. He was ready Pride and confidence in the flesh will lead us into, fall, into falls and destruction. You could be sure of that. The Proverbs rightly declare that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Listen, do not think that sin is beyond you. We are all capable of sin. Okay? Do not think that you are incapable of falling. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 exhorts us, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. Do not let pride and confidence in the flesh lead you to a great fall. Number three, next we see that Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying. Instead of exercising spiritual discipline, Peter gave in to the flesh. Peter was asked to watch and pray by the Lord, but instead Peter nodded off and caught some Z's. And in doing so, Peter showed a lack of spiritual discipline. You know, many of you guys know a lot about discipline. I've commented on this before. I'm very impressed with some of your guys' discipline, okay? You discipline your body, and you get it ready for the rigors of what military life may bring, from training to deployments to sleepless nights on watch. You've disciplined yourself to be able to handle whatever comes your way. But listen, we need to do the same spiritually, Okay, we need to discipline ourselves. We need to discipline our spirit. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in fellowship. And we need to do so regularly to prepare ourselves for everything the Lord has for us. And when we lack spiritual discipline and we start giving into the flesh, we are sleeping when we ought to be praying. We are headed for a rude awakening. Number four. From last week's text, we saw Peter rushing ahead of the Lord instead of waiting upon the Lord. He was impatient. The disciples asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But Peter didn't wait around to hear from the Lord. You know, if he would have waited just a few moments, he would have heard Jesus say, leave your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's what he's recorded as saying in Matthew's gospel. But because Peter didn't wait around for the Lord to respond, he moved ahead of the Lord and made a bad situation even worse. Listen, God wants us to be patient. He wants us to wait upon Him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 declares, But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. James tells us that patience is required in order for us to mature and to be made complete. He writes, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, when we don't wait upon the Lord and we don't allow patience to do its work in us, we're headed for misery. Number five, also last week we noted Peter rushing ahead of the Lord, trusting in his sword to bring about victory and save the day. Peter was attempting to use worldly means to fight a spiritual battle. We highlighted this last week. He was using the wrong kind of weapons. 2 Corinthians tells us that our weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 states, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing in every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You see, the Scriptures are very clear regarding the spiritual battle that rages on all around us. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 goes on to describe for us the whole armor of God, how we are to use these spiritual weapons that the Corinthians describes as mighty in God to bring about the victory in our life. We cannot use or try to use carnal things to solve spiritual problems. We cannot simply try and be the pacifist and think that simply ignoring our problems or avoiding them will take care of them or make them go away. We need to be engaged in the spiritual battle and properly equipped using the right weapons to engage in the battle. Number six, in the opening of our text this morning, we read of Peter following the Lord from a distance. Peter didn't want to get too close. He didn't want to take the risk of being associated with the Lord, linked to the Lord. And what ends up happening to Peter? He gets further and further and further away from the Lord as the night progresses. And that is what will happen to us as well. When we start following the Lord from a distance, the distance will only grow greater and greater and greater. And before you know it, you are miles away 
from where you once were with the Lord. John Corson, a favorite Bible teacher of mine, he talks about the danger of drifting further and further away from the Lord. He said that as we sail along spiritually, the danger is not that a bomb will sink us, but that we will slowly drift away. That's the danger. And I get that. Oftentimes, it's not an all-of-a-sudden event or attack that gets us away from the Lord, but it's subtle compromises in our walk with the Lord. You know, it's following the Lord from a distance that leads us to places where we never imagined we'd be, where that closeness we once had with the Lord, we allow it to, to gain and to separate from the Lord, and we're just not as close to Him as we once were, and we find ourselves in places we never thought imaginable. We need to be careful. We can't allow distance to grow between us and the Lord. Number seven, also from our text this morning, we read of how Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, hanging out with the servants of the high priest. Peter was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Peter was hanging out with the servants of the man that was in charge of beating and mocking his Lord. And 1 Corinthians 15.33 reads, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. The people that Peter was hanging out with were not edifying or encouraging him in his walk with the Lord. If anything, we would say that they were trying to find fault with his relationship with the Lord. And the pressure of being around those people led Peter into each of his three denials. We need to be careful who we hang out with. We need to be careful of who we allow ourselves to be influenced by. And I know that a lot of you guys, well, I got to go to work and I got to be around these people. I work with them and I understand that. But we often have a choice in the times when we do have a choice. Who are we choosing to hang out with? Who are we spending time with? Who are we allowing to influence our lives? These servants of the high priest obviously had a negative impact upon Peter, and the same is true today of certain people in our own lives. We need to distance ourselves from them and draw closer back to the Lord. Don't allow others to influence you against the Lord. Eighth, and finally, we also read today of how Peter sought and found comfort from the fire of the high priest's servants. He warmed himself at the fire. This was a case of Peter finding comfort in the things of this world. And whenever we start to seek the comforts of this world over the Lord, we are obviously headed in the wrong direction. We are called to be set apart from the things of this world, to be different, to be holy. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica how God did not call us to uncleanness, but he called us in holiness. Peter would later write his epistles to the church. In his first epistle, he writes how we are not to conform ourselves to the former lusts, as in our ignorance, the things, you know, the things we used to do, basically, the life we used to live before Christ. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We shouldn't feel comfortable in certain settings where sin is rampant and you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are against Christ. The Holy Spirit inside of you should be firing all cylinders saying, get out of here. Hey, I've called you out of this. I've called you to be holy, to be set apart. This isn't a place for you. These aren't the people for you. This is not what I've called you to. When we find comfort in the things of this world rather than in the Lord, we are going to compromise our faith and we will fall. It will happen, just as it did for Peter. You know, we look at this and we, you know, we've spent all morning looking at Peter's great failure, right? This downward spiral. He blew it. He made a series of poor decisions that led him to a place he never imagined even possible. He failed and it it was bad. Okay, Three times Peter denied the Lord. Each denial was filled with lies, attempts to fit in with the crowd, distancing himself from the Lord. He was in a very, very bad place, a place we don't ever want to be ourselves. But listen, you guys. Yes, Peter blew it. And yes, Peter was in a very bad place at this time. But I want to remind you that Peter wasn't left in that place. Okay, He wept bitterly. And he was sorrowful over his sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 states, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 
Peter displayed the right type of sorrow, a godly sorrow that led to repentance, and Jesus would ultimately restore Peter. If you are familiar with his account and his story, you know that Jesus would pick him back up and dust him off, so to say, and he would call him to feed God's lambs, to tend and feed his sheep as an under-shepherd of the Lord. Three times Peter denied the Lord, but in John chapter 21, three times the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? God restored Peter and he used him to have an incredible impact upon the world as we know it. And so let's make sure that, you know, we don't make the same mistakes Peter made, okay? We want to learn from these mistakes uh, so that we don't end up in the same position that he was in. But also, let me remind you, in case you need to be reminded of this, if you're here this morning and you find yourself maybe in Peter's position, and maybe you can identify with some of these shortfallings that you've maybe allowed to creep into your own heart and into your own life and the compromises, I want to remind you this morning that there still is hope, that godly sorrow leads to repentance, okay? God can forgive. He can pick you back up again, dust you off, and set you back on the path that he's chosen for you. So come to the Lord. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, and allow him to do a wonderful work of grace in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this portion of Scripture. Lord, while it is a a heavy portion of Scripture, a sad and sobering reminder of, Lord, just how far we can fall. Lord, we want to learn from Peter's mistakes. We don't want to find ourselves in his shoes, Lord. We don't want to find ourselves um, distancing ourselves from you and allowing compromise to, to creep in. Lord, you've called us to draw near to you, and that's what we want to do. We want to draw near to you. We want to have a close, intimate relationship with you. We want our words, we want our actions to speak boldly and and Lord, we want them to testify that we love you, that we know you, We want people to to look at us and say, that person knows the Lord. That person's different, Lord. We want to be salt and light for you. So, Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that we might live a life without compromise. Lord, that we would learn from Peter's mistakes and not follow the same path, Lord. And Lord, I do pray, Lord, as I'm sure, the timing of this message, Lord, and the people that you've brought here, I'm confident that there are people here that probably identify with Peter. Lord, and they've compromised, and they've allowed things in their life to distance themselves from you, Lord. At one time, they were much closer to you. Lord, I pray that you would touch them, and that your grace would shower upon them. They would realize that all they have to do is is come back to you, Lord. That you're there waiting for them to receive them back, to pick them back up, to get them back onto the path that you would have for them. And so, Lord, I pray, minister to our hearts. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.